This episode is brought to you by Dietz and Watson. Uh, Molly, it's time we have the talk about hot dogs. Oh, oh, okay. Well, hey, (laughs) I'm looking for a hot dog that's the real deal, Matthew. Like a classic hot dog that like when you think of like the platonic ideal of a hot dog, Mm -hmm. I recommend Dietz and Watson's Dietz Dogs. Ah, well, I've heard that they're handcrafted and made using only Dietz and Watson premium meat. I can vouch for this because Dietz and Watson sent us a big box of hot dogs and other delights. And wife of the show, Lori, and I had them for dinner last night. We had uh, the classic beef Dietz dogs with uh, toasted buns with sauerkraut and pickled jalapenos and Dietz and Watson ballpark style yellow mustard. Do you think you'd recommend Dietz and Watson hot dogs for fried rice? Oh, yeah. Fried rice with some sliced hot dogs. I'm going to be doing that soon. Wife of the show, Lori, is going to be making the hot dog flour buns from Christina Cho's cookbook, Mooncakes and Milk Bread. Very excited for this. Mm, And I'm especially pleased because Dietz and Watson does things the right way. So this means like no additives, no fillers, no artificial flavors, no cutting corners. You can feel good about this stuff. Dietz and Watson. It's a family thing since 1939. Shop now at Dietz slash the right way. That's Dietz, D-I-E-T-Z, and Watson.com slash the right way. I'm Matthew. And I'm Molly. And this is Spilled Milk, the show where we cook something delicious, eat it all, and you can't have any. Today, we are talking about, actually, Matthew, will you say this word first? Omurais. Omurais. Yes. We are talking about, it's basically a Japanese fried rice omelet. Is that like maybe the most concise way of describing it? Yeah, I think it is. Uh, it is an omelet full of fried rice, but it's it's more than that. Oh, it's so much more than that, as we will discuss today. So usually when we do an episode on a specific Japanese food item, it's because it's something that I like or you and I like that uh, we're just eager to talk about. This is something that I have almost never eaten until like the last week or so. And we're doing it because it's something that our guest has strong feelings about. Mm-hmm. And in fact, one of the one of the first things I ever read by our guest, who is a writer, was this article about, or an essay really, about omurais uh, in The New Yorker. Anyway, should we, just, we should tell them who the guest is, Matthew? Okay. Our guest okay. is, is going to be Brian Washington, the author of Memorial and a uh, great uh, essayist and food writer. And uh, he is a real lover of omurais. And so we figured once, uh, once we heard that Brian might be interested in being on our show, this is what we had to talk about. And basically, we're really nervous. Because <laughs> uh, we're, we're big fans of his work. And, and we, we don't, don't know, know a lot about this dish. But other than that, we're super duper prepared. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is considered a food that that kids love in Japan. So we're kids. We're, really. We are kids, kids at heart. Yes. Uh, you know, like when... Uh, when a game says it's for like ages nine to ninety nine. First of all, like <laughs> I, if I was a hundred, I'd be very offended by that. And, and secondly, we can't play that game because we're too young. Yeah. at heart. At yeah. heart. Um, okay. Well, Matthew, should we start it off by just saying a little bit more about like a memory lane? I mean, I know, like we, we've already admitted. Well, this is a dish that I have not yet had, and in fact, the first time I make it, which is going to be later today, actually, okay. I'm going to use I'm going to use Brian Washington's recipe from the yeah, New Yorker. I highly recommend that. 
So my omurice memory lane is really uh, being afraid of it because it involves ketchup, and I'm deathly afraid of ketchup, as you know, and and condiments in general. Omurice always involves ketchup. Not always, but usually. So if you if you like ask someone in Japan to like picture a classic omurice, it's going to be a fried rice made with chicken and ketchup, then okay. wrapped in a uh, in a thin omelet, and mm-hmm. then drizzled with more ketchup. And okay. like this is this is a thing you'll see. Like in in manga, like the ketchup drizzle is always drawn exactly the same, like you know, sinuous way. And uh, like if you order it at a at a yoshoku, like Japanese uh, Western style food restaurant, it will come like that usually. Okay, so the word omurice is the beginning of it the same as omelet? Yeah, omuretsu is, is oh, okay. omelet in Japanese, so it's omurice. Okay. okay, so it's basically a, a thin omelet with a fried rice filling, and it yes. almost always contains chicken, almost always contains ketchup. Yeah, one funny thing about it is that the, the rice inside is almost always called uh, chicken rice, but it is often mm. called chicken rice, even if it is not made with chicken. Okay. <laughs> that that uh, chicken rice has come to mean this kind of style of like ketchup flavored fried rice. And does it taste like ketchup once you cook the ketchup into the rice? Well, maybe we should like leave that as uh, as kind of a teaser because uh, first of all, I want to I want to talk about a conversation that I had with wife of the show Lori a couple days ago because okay. I was saying like you know I'm gonna make Brian's omurice recipe which has ketchup in the topping which is not pure ketchup in this case and ketchup in the filling and I hate ketchup. I fucking hate it. Like, if you make me a burger that's, like, a great burger and put ketchup on it, like, I will try and find a way to, like, feed it to the dog, right? Did did you have to buy a bottle of ketchup for this? I mean, like, did you not have ketchup? There was ketchup in my fridge because I use it to make homemade barbecue sauce, which, of course, is very similar to ketchup, but, like, different mm-hmm. enough that I can fool myself. So mm-hmm. what I was saying to Lori is, like, my life would be so much easier if I just liked ketchup, right? Because everybody loves ketchup. It's not like I'm saying, like, like, you know, I have to like hit myself on the head twice a day and I have to get used to that. Like, you know, this is a thing that literally almost everybody loves, like dipping your fries in ketchup. Like what kind of fucking maniac wouldn't enjoy that? Right. Well, and I'm realizing we were just saying that we're kids at heart and you're definitely I don't know what you are. If, you know, I'm like you're a, a kid who doesn't like, like a ketchup. person from another planet at heart because okay. um, I don't like mayo or mustard either. But. The thing is, like, I realized a few years ago, you know, a very, very popular dessert filling and, like, dessert, you know, ingredient in general in Japan is red bean paste. And okay. this, you know, it is made from from a bean that is very similar to kidney beans. And it is made into a paste that has very much the texture of smooth refried beans, but it's very sweet. And like many Americans who didn't grow up eating Japanese food very much, I found this very challenging. Like, why do I want sweetened refried beans in my dessert? And then I was like, okay, wait a minute. Everybody I know in Japan loves this stuff. Like, this is my problem, not theirs. I need to, like, make a point of, like, eating this once a day and see what, for a week and see what happens. And I did. And by the end of the week, I was like, oh, this is pretty good. Like, it's still not my most favorite. But if I'm going to the pancake place at Nakano Station, like, I'm going to get the red bean because that's that's the classic one and it's great fantastic so could i do this with ketchup also and uh, are we going to find out now or do we have to wait no i haven't tried it yet like i okay spoiler alert i did i did love brian's omurice recipe however i have not done the ketchup challenge yet 
Okay. Oh God. Is this going to be like the, the cinnamon challenge or your, t- is your <laughs> mouth going to burn off? Or do I need to like get nine one one, like all queued up on my phone? Well, I mean, you probably should anyway, just cause it, like, I'm probably doing something <laughs> stupid at any given time that's going to yeah. land me in the hospital. But yeah, so I want to, I want to get some like McDonald's fries and dip them in ketchup. And I want to get like a little Woody's burger with like everything I like on it. Plus ketchup. What is your prediction? What do you think is going to happen? I don't think it's going to go well, dude. I mean, I I, I, I genuinely I, don't know. I, I love you platonically. <laughs> We're still not married. I love you, but I just, and I know you're capable of great personal growth, but I don't know if you're capable of this kind of personal <laughs> yeah. growth. I don't either. It's, so I'm, I'm scared. Yeah. I just don't know what's going to happen. But like I, by this time, next time we record, I could be a different person. I could be a catch up person. Okay, let's plan. We'll return to this. Yeah, I don't want to forget to mention that that like I had a conversation with like several friends in Japan and asked them like, "What is your favorite food?" And like two out of three people said omurice. Wow! Like this is this is an absolutely like beloved food that people grow up eating and. You know, and it's really good. That's why. Well, I loved seeing your picture of it because you would never know there was ketchup involved in the rice. Yeah, no, that's what appealed to me about Brian's recipe. I knew I, you know, I had to try it because because we're having him on the show. But like, I felt like the ketchup was just disguised enough that I could lie to myself, which is mm-hmm. my favorite thing to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We are thrilled to have Brian Washington as our guest today. He is the author of the best-selling novel Memorial, which is newly out in paperback, and the acclaimed story collection Lot. He's been a finalist for and or the winner of too many literary awards to name in this short introduction. And you've probably read his work because he's been published by the New York Times, the New York Times Magazine, the New Yorker, BuzzFeed, Bon Appetit, and so many more. I'm especially excited about the fact that that Memorial is going to be turned into a TV show by the independent studio A24, whose horror movies I have really enjoyed. Wow. And I can't wait to watch, especially because you're writing the adaptation yourself, right? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's still happening. <laughs> still very much in the midst of uh, doing it. But it's cool to work with a team like A24 because they're all aligned in just making like a really cool thing instead of like the thing that's going to like sell the most or like the thing that's going to be like the most easily understood. So as someone who's trying to create something that's like the biggest gift that you can ask for. That is fantastic. Well, welcome to Spilled Milk. For listeners who haven't yet read Memorial, I wanted to give a quick synopsis because um, a a lot of what we want to talk with you about is the food in the book. But it focuses on a couple in Houston, Texas. So Benson, who is a black daycare teacher, and Mike, who's a Japanese-American chef. And they love each other, but their relationship isn't in a great spot. And things get even more complicated when Mike leaves for Osaka, where his father is dying of cancer at the same time that his mother, Mitsuko, arrives in Houston to visit him. And so Mitsuko and Benson, who'd previously never met, wind up stuck together as housemates for an indefinite amount of time. And it's funny and it's profound and it's sad. And for me, um, it's the kind of queer love story where what I loved is that the character's queerness wasn't the most interesting thing about them or their relationship. That was really wonderful. Anyway, but I was also so thrilled to find out how much Memorial is about food and how much it is about cooking. 
I read an interview with you where you said that when you were writing it, you were interested in the way that food could convey emotion and pleasure, especially in scenes where emotion and pleasure were not immediately apparent between the characters, especially those scenes with Benson and Mitsuko. And I wondered if you could tell us a bit about your own relationship to food and cooking. Yeah, I think that it's been a dynamic relationship, you know, and I think that it's a relationship that's changed even over the course of the past year and the way that I think it's changed for like many folks who perhaps like you hadn't had to cook for yourself, you know, maybe you could rely pretty amply right. on like on takeout or like eating friends for drinks every night or whatever, but that hasn't been the ideal option as of late. I mean, I think that I started cooking out of necessity more so than anything else just because like i when i was like a kid it was quite young but my parents worked and they worked long hours so like if i wanted to eat in the afternoon and sometimes in the evening like i'd have to cook or i'd have to figure out like how to like make rice or like sandwiches or, like very very like simple fare but i didn't think of it as a way of making income or being like a way of life or like a thing about me until enough and had enough opportunities from various editors and you know all of a sudden a few people looked up and said oh like he writes about food and i was like i guess like i don't i don't really know but right. it's it, it's it's i think it's like a, a means of writing about the ways that people are able to communicate or not and i mean it's, it's it is a universal language in, in many ways right like food and intimacy in many ways or food or intimacy and trying to figure out how to siphon like this relationship between these two young men in the novel who don't really know what it means to communicate with one another but both right. have mm -hmm. you know food as a language at their disposal although in, in varying capacities i just thought it would be a nice way to include food in a narrative because i feel like that's like one of the things that you rarely see in contemporary american literary fiction like nobody really eats and yep. nobody goes to work and nobody really has sex like those three things like they just, they just don't yes. happen yes. so like writing a book where that was like the only three things that occurred was really funny to me but also it was it felt uh, i felt like a nice way to get at that conversation of how can we communicate with one another? Perhaps when we want the same things that we don't know how to articulate that or we want varying things or the extent to which we want the same thing varies pretty wildly. Like what are different ways we can go about having more difficult conversations? So food seemed like one way to mm -hmm. go about doing that. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that because like when I was reading Memorial, one of the things I loved about it was like it made me think about how I feel when I'm watching a movie or reading a book and the characters are about to have sex and then this cuts away to a new scene. And I'm like, I wanted to see that. Like, you know, I was like, OK, here we go. And then you took away the most interesting part. And like the same goes for food. Yeah. In modern literature, like I want to see you know, what they're eating, what they're cooking, like how they're doing it. And Memorial gives me the good stuff. I'm so glad. Yeah, yeah. You know, you pay like how much is a hardcover yeah. book? It's like twenty eight dollars. It's like, why are you cutting away? It's like twenty eight USD that I paid, and like you're, you're, you're shortchanging me. But yeah, I was trying to write a trying to write the, the sort of narrative that I thought that I would enjoy reading and that my friends would take pleasure from is, is usually my like yeah. primary goal. And those are you know things that we and I gravitate toward. So you're from Houston, and Houston shows up a lot in your work, but Japan does too. And I read that you spent a summer in Osaka while working on this book, which sounds really, really hot, but also great. How did you originally strike up a relationship with Japan? And aside from omurais that we're going to get to in a minute, what do you expect, especially look forward to eating when you go to Japan? Uh, it started since we've been in pandemic time. It's hard to say. I think it's like six years. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Not like yesterday, it was four years ago. I think I went for the first time about six 
years ago now and i would just go to visit friends it wasn't with you know the, the intention of writing about the experience or you know with any right. or monetizing it in any sort of way but um i was sure. teaching uh, esl um in houston at the time and if you know you teach esl in houston you there's a good chance you have summers off and if you're flying out of bush international and you don't mind leaving it like 2 a.m. you can get like a pretty cheap flight that's going to be like 36 hours like eight layovers and i didn't mind doing that right. at the time you know because that, that meant i could spend like a few months like with my friends in osaka and then in tokyo to some extent but i i found that this i really i just really enjoyed the city i really enjoyed the ambiance it reminds me of houston in a lot of ways and just that the populace is just really laid back and really humorous and really self-aware simultaneously but not in like a detrimental way <laughs> you know it was, it was just, I just had like a really nice time and it, it became interesting to me trying to figure out what those connections were between Osaka and Houston and why I felt the way that I did when I was in that particular city and it's something that's still really interesting to me I think that the biggest shock for me food wise or cuisine wise over there um, from my first trips onward is just that everything was just really delicious and everything was deep not just delicious but deeply fresh like at the ingredient level yeah. everything was just so high quality and just so I don't know, just really like like an egg was like an egg <laughs> like, you know and yeah, and, and just something as simple as eggs and and and, and rice you know um it was just deeply uh delicious so coming into contact with like yeah there's like orangey red yolks in japan yeah, yeah, something yeah. i think about all the time yeah just coming into contact with flavors that i've been aware of that i hadn't experienced in the pronounced way that i experienced them and osaka was like really paradigm shifting for me and my understanding of like what goes into a dish and and how to construct a dish that is has like a lot of value both at the ingredient level but also as like a whole um and and one of the dishes that really did that for me was like okonomiyaki um it was the you know the first time i had it was in uh the, from a street vendor in the way that most folks, you know, they just cook it at home, but, you know, street vendors sell it. And it was just like a revelation for me because I hadn't had a cabbage pancake, pancake before as someone who like has had quite a lot of pancakes like in my life here before than, you know, prior to uh, visiting Osaka. But it was like, it was, it was just so full of flavor and so many different kinds of flavors between salty and sweet and, you know, having umami and like all of these things um, from bite to bite. That was just really... It was really important to me, you know, and then it's it, sometimes it can sound a little strange to me even to be like, oh, yeah, like this one bite was like really like deeply. It, it was a shift for me there, but but it was true. And, you know, it's something that I think about quite often. Yeah, mm, I love that. So something that Matthew and I were both talking about is how in Memorial, when Mike goes to Japan to be with his dying father, he starts working in his dad's bar and it feels like a very real place. You know, Matthew and I were like, did Brian work in a bar in Japan? Like what kind of research did you do in order to capture the scene at Eiju's Izakaya? Yeah. So I, I worked um, my, my first jobs were food service so I'd, i had some experience working in food service but as far as like the izakaya scene specifically like just spending a lot of time in bars and also lots of different kinds of bars and seeing the ways in which the 
clientele to, I suppose, like a management relationship is just so varied from what we might typically experience in the mm-hmm. States, right? And that, you know, many of the bars are smaller and more intimate um, and more familial, right? And many, so many friendships yeah. develop mm-hmm. from bars and friendships that oftentimes might be exclusive to like the bar as a space itself. Like that's the one place that you see many of these people or many of the same people that they become like a major part of your life, right? They become like a pivotal, you know, a part of like your day-to-day experience, not only in the city, but also like how you perceive yourself and how you perceive those around you. And then the bartender becomes like a really, like a family figure um, in many ways. So it's experiencing that felt like another opportunity to really circle circle around this question of like what constitutes a family, you know, or like what are the many different Mm -hmm. forms that like a family can take, right? Like what happens when like the, the ties that you have to the folks that you meet, like in, in Izakaya, are, you know, firmer or feel firmer than those of like blood can, right? And what would the expectations at that point and, and what happens when, you, you know, there's need on, on either side of that expectation, right? Like who can, you know, what, what happens when the folks that you find yourself relying on or, um, you know, to strangers and to other folks might look circumstantial. Like, oh, these are just people that you see in the bar, right. but really like, you know, yeah. they are a family and they are a family of sorts. Um, that felt like something that was going to be interesting to read to me and largely just because I was, mm-hmm. I, and I have been trying to figure out what that means to me uh, specifically. Mm. Matthew and I um, have gone to Tokyo a couple of times together, and there's a particular bar that we really love in Nakano that we first went to together. And uh, yeah, I I aspire to someday spend enough time there to um, to have that that feeling because it was so interesting when I was reading those scenes in Memorial, like all good literature should, it enabled me to um, to live inside it and you know, take my own experience from this bar in Tokyo and put it into the story. Thank you for that. Yeah, thank y'all. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about Omurais a little. So you wrote uh, a piece for The New Yorker that uh, Molly and I both read and enjoyed very much called The Japanese Fried Rice Omelette That Rewired My Brain. Tell us about the first time you had Omurais. There's a restaurant whose name that I can't remember off the top of my head, but it, it was it, it was like a sort of chance encounter that I had with this particular restaurant. Like it was, it was by um, a, a train station and, uh, or on one of the local lines and I just wanted something to eat. Like I, I think, I, I think I gotten like lost on that particular day. Sure. I wanted to go somewhere else to eat something else. And I got on oh, the yeah. train and I had just been, you know, I just been stuck and lost. And I was like, okay, like I would like to eat something at this point. And I wasn't really feeling like konbini food, although that would have been like equally delicious getting coming from the convenience store. So I wonder, and you know, to this, restaurant and it, it was almost like a sort of like western style or like western facing restaurant yeah. and uh, you know i sat down i'm like one of the few people there and like i this i had no conception of like what omurice was like specifically but the guy behind the counter like he just sort of like walked me through it it's like in in my very bad japanese and like his very fluent english and we decided on like a dish that uh, it, uh, one of like the four things that they had on the menu, um, and it, it, it was between like a tomato. It was like the omurice. It was uh, a demi glaze sauce, and it was also like a sort of like red tomato based sauce with like uh, a really heavy parmesan filling um, inside of like the sort Ooh, of egg mixture. And um, which I now know, but I didn't know at the time. 
Uh, so I was just kind of like, yeah. And he was like, it's going to be awesome. You're going to love it. I was like, okay, like I trust you. I guess we just met. Let's just see what happens. And it was, again, one of those like fights or like one of those meals where it was just like, oh man, like this is, this is like wild. It was, it was just really delicious, largely, I think, because it was so unexpected for me. Again, like seeing these ingredients that were front facing is like familiar for me and front facing is one that I already had a relationship with, but cooked in such a way and with such attentiveness that it really, you know, just like it was a meal that like really like caught me something, you, you know, and I think that that's just like a really rare experience for me at least, right? Like to have like, a, and, and, and I mean, and I suppose with any relationship between like somebody and the thing that you're eating is like deeply intimate. It is, you know, someone to care with and now it's becoming a part of you. It is a part of your life. But to experience that in like a time and in a place where like I wasn't expecting to have that experience was, uh, it was just really shocking almost. And like I, I went back like quite often uh, after that. I'm quite looking forward to going back again. So in your New Yorker piece about omurice, you, you, there's a recipe that accompanies it. Um, do you make omurice a lot at home? And do you usually use this, this formula that was in the New Yorker? Um, I make it pretty often. I mean, I think that there was uh, I, I live in Houston, and Houston is where I was for the brunt of last year. Um, in Houston specifically, I think that most of the city took the pandemic seriously for about like eight days. <laughs> but there right. are parts of the city <laughs> you know that are still very much in the midst of the pandemic. Um, all of which is to say that like I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't eating out uh, last year at all, yeah. and I even you know takeout I was mostly pretty wary of. So so I cooked a lot, and all this was like one of the things that I was cooking like twice a week or so, um, particularly because that was around the time that um, I was in, I was on the back end of edits for a memorial and gearing up toward publications. So I was already working like a lot in addition to like my other gig. And that recipe is it's pretty pretty much the foundation of what I tend to err toward with, you know, my own personal cooking. I mean, I'm someone who I follow recipes as like a baseline or as a foundation, but the more that I cook a dish, um, I, I think it just becomes more, for me at least, about uh, just, just time, personal timing, uh, personal preference, you know, the recipe changes depending on who I'm cooking for. Like, if it's just myself, then like, I'm going to do whatever I'm going to do. And like, if I mess up like right. a, a sauce or if it was like, if the egg is too ready, I'm just kind of like, okay, like whatever. But like, if I'm cooking for someone else, um, you know, yeah, I have like their preferences in mind and their tolerance in mind. But like as a base, um, it, that recipe has like served me pretty well. What are some ways you find yourself mixing it up either based on like what you're hungry for or what you have in the fridge? Mm. The other dish that I was cooking like quite a lot uh, for the brunt of last year was kimchi fried rice. So I oh, would cook, yes, me too. Uh, yeah. Oh, that right, right. yeah, a perfect yes. Dish. Like a dish was like yes. all of the components are like a perfect meal and and, and so simple yeah. and so great. Um, I would cook uh, kimchi fried rice or like if I had cooked kimchi fried rice like the day prior, like I would you know quickly stir fry that kimchi fried rice and I would um, cook the omurice up to a point and just fold um, the omelet over that kimchi fried rice. Uh, that that's that I would sort of, yeah, that's something yes. I would lean toward. Um, I, I would change up the cheese filling that I would use for the omurice or whatever I was cooking at any given point in time. Um, I would like maybe amp up the heat for like the tomato base 
um, uh, depending on like what if, if I wanted like the same dish, but I just wanted like a variation upon it. I mean, just and that that was also something that like taught me a lot, you know, like working with you know these these same ingredients and and coming to have like a different relationship with them, right, or a relationship with them in such a way that I could make slight alterations and come up with an entirely di- different meal or like the experience of an entirely different meal for myself. And it's something that I think has had like impact on like when I'm cooking for others now that it's a little bit safer, you know, folks are vaccinated, we can eat in one another's homes or what have you. Um, the, the experience of like cooking for others, having had that experience and making those slight alterations, cooking the same thing over and over and over again for myself has, has been one that's been really pleasurable and like really fruitful. Ah, I love that. Before we let you go, I wondered, um, I mean, you sound like a very intuitive cook, but are there cookbooks, especially Japanese cookbooks or websites that you go to for, you know, for inspiration or for guidance as you try out new dishes? Yeah. So I, I think that uh, just one cookbook is, is really important to me. Um, the, the the main um, runner of the site's Nami. Like she is God as far as I'm concerned. Like, she, like every recipe yeah, that, we like, agree. yeah, every recipe that she has on the website, just like hit like it works like it's yep. just full stop like you know 10 out of 10 like no notes ever but another cookbook that i've been uh cooking from quite a lot is um everyday korean um that, that's a book that i quite love um there's a book called black food that was released very recently that i've been cooking out of like very 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 frequently as of late and like i've really in, enjoyed it um uh, of course like you know yes. i just just quite mm-hmm. enjoy i'm glad you mentioned black food we're yeah. working on getting uh Bryant on the show soon. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's such a, it's such a dynamic cookbook too, yeah. you know, I mean, there's a, there's, there's a level of precision for every single recipe, but the recipes themselves like run the gamut as far as like what um, you're looking to cook. Like I cooked this, my, my boyfriend and I, like last week we cooked, it's a stew with like a coconut milk base, but it had um, apple, it had cashew and it had a uh, squash. Um, and it was just so delicious. And, you know, we added shrimp and then we sort of like amped up the fish sauce and made some other changes for like our personal preferences, but it, it was just so, delicious Mm. you know like it was just it was really really great um so those are you know those are those have been really important to me lately and also there's a there's a youtuber who goes by the moniker of like one meal a day and i believe it's like every week or so they'll post like a new recipe and in the midst of the pandemic i leaned really heavily on their recipes and like the videos are just like really cute like they're just really really short they're always like under like five minutes like around that sort of like three and a half to like four minute threshold and it's really only like five ingredients max usually they'll get away with like three or four ingredients and the meals are just really delightful in and of themselves you know so that was that series was one that has been really important to me and was really important to me like in the midst of the pandemic all right well you can definitely link to all of the things you mentioned uh in the show notes brian thank you so much for joining us on spilled milk this has been such a pleasure oh wow thank you all so much for for having me i'm such a fan and it means a lot that you took the time thank you thank you so memorial is now out in paperback brian before you go is there anything else that you would like to plug uh, of your stuff yeah um i'm I'm pretty bad about being online which is the same and i'm really not because 
Yeah. I'm just I've just been busy lately just working on the next book and then working on, on the show. But I am on Instagram at bry dot w a s h i n g. Um and my website is brywashing.com. Uh, that usually has like more recent stuff that I've been working on and sort of circling around. Yeah. All right. Terrific. Well, thank you so much and can't wait to see Memorial on the screen yeah. and can't wait to read what you're working on next. Oh, wow. Yeah. Thank you all so much for having me. Ever been to Delaware? If not, now is the time to visit. You'll find a lot of fun in a little state. Since you can drive anywhere in the state in a couple of hours, you'll spend less time driving and more time enjoying. Explore from the bays to the beaches, stroll the boardwalks, and have an oceanside bonfire. Get a taste of Delaware at one of the award-winning restaurants and enjoy a local craft brew. See the first state's unique historic landmarks and experience Delaware's endless discoveries. Plan your adventure today at visitdelaware.com. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see, so... No, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Oh, my God. He was so delightful. What Do you think he was fucking with us that he was a fan? I mean, I think that's a kind of thing I would say if I wanted to be nice. <laughs> But, but Don't rain on my parade, man. But he, but he seems so nice that that I believe him. Uh, Great, let's let's believe him. Let's choose to okay. believe him. So uh, I'm glad, like he talked about, how kind of like that omurice is kind of like alchemy. That uh, like when I was making Brian's recipe, I was like, okay, I kind of know like what how this is going to turn out because I know what ketchup tastes like, and I know what chicken thighs taste like, and I made fried rice a million times before, and I've made a million omelets, and it comes together into something that is much more than the sum of its parts. Well, you know, one thing I've been thinking about, you know, with the presence of ketchup in the rice mixture, ketchup mm-hmm. as a rice seasoning, is that, you know, like what happens when you're cooking with tomato paste, right? Like yeah. there is something that changes about the flavor Absolutely. and the texture and everything of tomato paste when it gets hot. And I imagine that, that, Ketchup does the same thing. I mean, what's in ketchup? Like sugar, tomato, what, some vinegar? vinegar? Yeah. All of those things, if you take them apart, are totally natural with rice and yeah. wouldn't necessarily yield a flavor that says ketchup. And the sauce is great, too. Like the sauce, like it's called demi-glace sauce, but it like has nothing whatsoever in common with like French demi-glace sauce because it is a mixture of ketchup, Japanese Worcestershire sauce, tonkatsu sauce, and honey just like whisked together. That's the sauce. Delightful. Um, And uh, I was like, I don't know, like this is going to be like just like too sweet or too simple or taste too too much like ketchup and I'm not going to like it. No, I loved it. So you mentioned earlier in the episode that omurice is often just served like drizzled with ketchup. Now we know it can also go with this sort of demi-glace sauce, demi-glace in quotes. Um, Are there other things that this omelet is often topped with or are those the main things? So the other the other one that I've seen and have eaten at a at a little Japanese cafe called uh, Maruliru Cafe in uh, in Vancouver is uh, curry. So like the same, like a kind of thin Japanese curry sauce uh, is great with omurice. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure there are others as well because there are, there are like restaurants in Japan that specialize in omurice and could either be like the kind of place where like, you know, they just make it one way and you're going to have it their way or they make it 10 ways and you can take your pick. So any sauce that like plausibly could go on there, someone has tried it for sure. I love the thought of that, that, you know, there's somebody out there maybe who's just trying all the different sauces on omurice, Probably. smearing mayonnaise, maple syrup. Probably. And, now and I'm it's just great messing around. Shichimi Togodashi, of course. Oh, that sounds perfect. And I think it probably is screaming for a cold beer. Yeah, for sure. I think Brian talks about that in the article. He does. He does. So, of course, we'll link to the article. We'll link to his omurice recipe. Matthew, does Just One Cookbook have an omurice? Mm-hmm. Okay, yes. great. We'll link to Nami's omurice then. Yeah. Okay, we got we got a lot of links this week. We're like uh, we we're like so a sausage factory. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, All right, Matthew, do we have any spilled mail this week? I don't think we do. So hit us up. Contact at spilledmilkpodcast.com. The last time I asked for spilled mail, you really delivered, you the listener. I didn't get any from Molly, so you're gonna have to you're gonna have to pick up the slack <laughs> yeah, but here. You get so many texts from me every That's day. True. I, I don't think you want more. Okay, so instead of spilled mail, we're gonna we're gonna read a couple of texts, recent texts from Molly. This is our new oh, segment. No. It's called Texts from Molly. Oh, did I have any funny ones? Um, mm-hmm. I think lately we've been talking about your cat. Yeah, um, that's not that's, been very that's funny. Too sad. I just did some very butch things like removing the hose and putting on the insulated spigot cover. It might freeze tonight. Changing the light bulbs in our outdoor lights and doing some touch-up painting in my office. Yeah. Oh, God. That was great. After that, um, I attempted to... um, Our kitchen sink faucet wasn't working, so I ordered a new faucet. And I was really... I mean, I really... I watched a lot of YouTube videos on how to change like this particular type of faucet. And I was so ready to be the butch I am on the inside. Yeah. Not so Um, much on the outside. Um, But anyway, we wound up having to like call our friend Joe because we didn't have a monkey red. And now we're going to get a monkey wrench. You got to get and that monkey the, wrench. I can't wait. Anyway. Is, is a monkey wrench just like like the kind of curvy head wrench? What's a monkey wrench? So we had some like regular wrenches, which I'm sure have names other than regular wrench. Like but a, anyway, yeah. a monkey wrench comes in multiple sizes and it's the bigger, more heavy duty one okay. that um, you've probably seen. You know, you'd probably see it in something where, I don't know, somebody's getting beaten over the head with it or something. Okay, so just like that kind of wrench. (laughs) That kind of wrench. Okay. Um, All our listeners are like, wow, Molly is failing at her efforts to be a butch because that she can't describe a monkey wrench. Well, I mean, it worked for me because like now, like, you know, I I don't do a lot of like home repair, but I do like do a lot of beatings (laughs) Um, because like I'm a I'm a peaky blinder. Oh, um, yeah. Like I did. I, I forgot to tell you, I got a new job as a Peaky Blinder. Oh, really? I've never you watched and, the show. Uh, oh my God. Well, so I'm surprised. Killian they, Murphy? Yeah. So it's... I'm working closely with, with Killian on a variety of, of projects, <laughs> okay. um, most of which involve a, a monkey wrench. Oh, great. Okay, great. Well, Matthew, I have a now but wow this week that oh, I'm pretty excited about. And it's Peaky Blinders. Okay, so this is going to be a little bit hard for people to find in their podcast search function, because it was a little hard for me to find. I first learned about it from my friend Sarah Franklin. It is a podcast put out by the Poetry Foundation. Um, It is the Versus podcast, but you will only find it if you search for VS. 
So um, that like oh, that's the, clever. We can link to it in yeah. the show notes. Oh, great. Okay, perfect. So this podcast, I think it's going into its sixth season. I think it's wrapping up its fifth season. By the time this episode comes out, maybe we'll be close to the sixth one. And it's about to have a a transition in hosts. But let me tell you what this podcast does, which is so great. So um, as you may have guessed from the mention of Poetry Foundation, this is a a podcast about poetry. Specifically, it is a series where um, the two hosts who uh, for the first five years have been Dinez Smith and Franny Choi. Okay. Uh, they're about to get a new host or couple of hosts for the show. Franny and Dinez interview a poet. And I think, gosh, over the years, they've interviewed almost 100 poets. And they always um, sort of wind up focusing on like sort of one idea that moves them. So a recent episode, or not recent at this point, but sort of my gateway episode was the Ross Gay episode from late 2020, uh, around the time that the poet Ross Gay came out with his book-length poem, Beholding. He was on the show, and he had like the most fantastic and irreverent conversation with Franny and Dinez. I can't recommend it highly enough. I'm so excited to see who the new hosts will be. Maybe by the time this airs, uh, we will know who the new hosts are. But that's the Versus podcast from the Poetry Foundation. Check it out. And yeah, try looking for the Ross Gay episode from late 2020. It's great. Yeah, we will link it up in the show notes. We'll make sure not to accidentally link to um, a different Versus podcast, which is just (laughs) where uh, two guys talk about Pearl Jam second album every week (laughs) but that probably exists also there are so many like when i first heard about it i yeah i didn't know to search for vs i found there are a lot of podcasts that are called versus or versus do we have any calling it quilts no calling it quilts but can i tell you guys so matthew again any quilt or comforter or afghan related news we want we have been recording these podcasts so uh would i say like asynchronous we always asynchronously sounds like i'm recording it like myself and then you're recording your part at a different time and somehow abby has to knit them together to make it sound like a conversation if we could do that we i think we would have like we would get like a the pulitzer prize for like dumb podcasting tricks uh, no, maybe what I mean is like anachronistically. <laughs> we're, doing, we're doing these podcasts anachronistically. Yes, we're doing them by candlelight uh, using using uh, recording onto wax cylinders. <laughs> no. Okay, what I'm trying to say is we're recording this in like uh, like the third week of October. Mm. This episode is coming out in December. And what I wanted yeah. to say is that my, my quilting aspirations right now are to quilt a... Christmas tree skirt. Okay, I like that. <laughs> so, like, ever since I've been a grown up, I've, you know, whenever I've had a Christmas tree, I've never had a skirt for it. And I remember one year taking, like, a knit blanket that we How had. How do you even live? Putting it around the bottom. Last year, we took, like, a piece of white fabric we found in our, like, you know, sewing stash and kind of draped that around the tree stand. Anyway, I've decided I want to make a patchwork of white fabrics. Okay you know, cut it like a tree skirt. And my goal is to do that between now and December. And listener, you're listening to this in early December, and I can't wait to find out if I've done it or not. <laughs> oh, yeah. You, listener, you know something that Molly doesn't, which is whether <laughs> Molly successfully uh, 
created a tree skirt. I'm not sure if the listener will know. Have I ever thought about tree skirts before? I mean, I did know they exist, but I don't think I've ever had a conversation with someone about them before. I mean, I just want to be clear that I'm not the kind of person who sits around and and like goes, oh, no, I don't have a tree skirt. How can I go on being a woman in 21st century America? (laughs) Um, No, it's just more like I kind of wanted a quilting project and I don't want to do a quilt. As, As everyone may remember, I really only have the stamina for one quilt every four years. Right. Yeah, so and this I mean, is like a mini quilt. You do you do live your life anachronistically in a lot of ways. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have been riding a bicycle through this whole episode to power my computer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your your whole life is kind of like the Magic Treehouse series. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh man, I uh, that was so scary when I had to run from the dinosaurs. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Okay. I remember that episode. That oh, was, that God, was scary. I, so, I, I couldn't find the treehouse at first. It was Man, weird that, that you were so running scary. from one of like the little dinosaurs that like is <laughs> like <laughs> one foot tall. Like that that was kind of silly, but I, I enjoyed watching it. Yeah. Okay. Well, our producer is Abby Circatella. She's probably not enjoyed listening to this episode at all. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure she enjoyed uh, the part where, where we interviewed a great author. <laughs> yeah. But the rest of it. Rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, please. Mm-hmm. And you can join us at reddit.com slash r slash everything spilled milk. And by join us, I mean, join in the, the conversation about spilled milk with yeah. fellow spilled milkies. I mean, like I've once, never once said a month. That before. Uh, yeah, no, our, our fans are definitely called, called milkies. <laughs> <laughs> Mommy, can I have my milkies? <laughs> that's what uh, that's what the kids do say that again. when they want their parents to put on our podcast. <laughs> Good off my milkies. Um, okay, I, I pop onto the Reddit like maybe once a month, and sometimes notice that someone has asked me something, and I'll try and answer it. Mm-hmm. So that's a little a bit anachronistic of me, but I make it work. <laughs> Okay. Well, um, thank you, as always, for listening to Spilled Milk. Thank you again, Brian Washington, for being on the show. Thanks for listening to Spilled Milk, the show where... The show uh, where uh, Molly's going to knit us an omelet and we're going to get wrapped up in it like a human omurice. I'm me. And I'm also me. So there's this crazy weather pattern that's supposed to happen today. It's called a boom monsoon. And I was like, like, that's definitely a professional wrestler, right? Ever been to Delaware? If not, now's the time to visit. You'll find a lot of fun in a little state. Since you can drive anywhere in the state in a couple of hours, you'll spend less time driving and more time enjoying. Explore from the bays to the beaches, stroll the boardwalks and have an oceanside bonfire. Get a taste of Delaware at one of the award-winning restaurants and enjoy a local craft brew. See the first state's unique historic landmarks and experience Delaware's endless discoveries. Plan your adventure today at visitdelaware.com.